worry, 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 worry. Don't anticipate trouble or worry about what may never happen. Keep it in the sunlight. Benjamin Franklin. Worry is interest paid on trouble before it comes due. William Ng. How much pain they have cost us, the evils which have never happened. Thomas Jefferson. Drag your thoughts away from your troubles, by the ears, by the heels, or any other way you can manage it. Mark Twain. Worry ducks when purpose flies overhead. T. Gullimans. Rule number one, don't sweat the small stuff. Rule number two, it's all small stuff. <laughs> R. Elliot. Fear can keep us up all night long, but faith makes one fine pillow. P. Gully. You can't wring your hands and roll your sleeves up at the same time. P. Schroeder. One day of worry is more exhausting than a day of work. J. Lubbock. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul. Amen. I don't know if any of those quotes stick out for you, um, but they do for me. So if you can guess what we're talking about today, uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, the topic of anxiety. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, for those of you that perhaps uh, haven't been a while or new, um, we are going through the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. And uh, and the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' first big block of teaching, right? So Matthew opens up and it talks about, you know, who Jesus is and the uh, genealogy. Uh, and then really early on in Matthew, you have John the Baptist appear. And John the Baptist shows up on the scene. And he calls people um, to be baptized. He says, repent for the, the kingdom of God is coming. Right, and, and he baptizes them with a baptism of repentance. Right, and what repentance means is it means that we change our the way that we think, and this change of thinking it results in a, in a change of living in the way that we behave. Um, and Jesus follows in suit with this as John the Baptist comes. Jesus comes and he says, "Repent and believe the gospel. Re believe in the good news about about the kingdom of God and its coming." And this is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Right, is Jesus is coming and he is showing us what does it mean to repent and to believe the gospel, and to believe in the kingdom. And all throughout in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is unpacking how we ought to think. And implicit in it is ways that we don't think, right? I mean, you read the Sermon on the Mount, and like, you can't help but it stands in stark contrast to the way that we usually think. And so Jesus is constantly saying, you know, by contrast, you think this way, but this is not the way that you are to think. Think instead like this. And so, once again, Jesus calls us in this passage, and he, he says, listen, you have a natural way, we have a natural way of thinking, of processing, and he says that, that we are to repent. We are to change the way that we think and believe in what he has taught us and believe in the good news of the gospel and that this is where life is found. And so, we look and we, uh, we came to chapter 6, and, uh, and to kind of get some context on where we're going to be, because we're wrapping up chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 25 to 34 in chapter 6. But uh, the first part of the chapter really starts with Jesus saying, don't be like the hypocrites, right? So where he's talking about don't be people pleasers, right? Because if you are desiring to, to please people, um, you're never going to be satisfied, right? Because there are, one, a lot of people out there. <laughs> And so uh, no matter where you run across, there's going to be somebody that's going to have different expectations, and you're constantly going to be, as this pastor is going to fill with anxiety. And so he says, don't, don't live to, to please people. Don't uh, live this righteousness simply externally, right? The, the, it flows from an internal desire to please God. If you separate it, if you just do righteous acts to be seen or, or for external attention, then they're not righteous, they, they've, they've been voided on their righteousness. And then he comes in last week, we talked about that Jesus says, listen, you can't, don't hoard up for yourself treasures on earth 
Why? Because it's not really wise, right? It's stupid. If you want to be financially intelligent, then invest where moth and rust can't destroy and, and thieves can't break in and steal. Invest in a place where your return isn't going to be limited and where it's not going to be uh, taken. Invest in eternity. Find your treasure to be in heaven where none of these things can be taken from you. And he goes and he says, listen, you can't serve two masters. You can't run two paths at the same time. You have to choose one. You can't serve God or the God of mammon. And so which is it that we are serving? And this is, this is so applicable because both of these are directly tied into anxiety, as we'll see. And so just so we, we get some, some context, but before we read our passage, I just want to do some personal application up front and ask you, what is it that causes you anxiety? What in your life makes you lose sleep, keeps you up at night, makes you restless, that you worry about, that just, it, it, it wrenches your gut? What causes, what causes you anxiety? Because the first part of unpacking anxiety is realizing that we have it and naming it. And so I hope that, that your mind's going. Hopefully it's not a mystery to you, but if it is, then maybe this is a time that we can pull back that veil and, and you have a little introspection and start to think, what is it that, that brings anxiety into my heart? Because God wants to speak into that area of our life today. So let's, uh, let's pray and then let's dive into the text. God, we ask you, we invite you, Holy Spirit, into this moment. We ask you that you would illuminate your word, that you would make it clear and obvious, that you would help us to be not simply hearers of the word, but doers, God, that we wouldn't listen for the sake of entertainment, but for the sake of obedience, God, that we would want to hear in order that we would obey you, in order that we would have freedom in this life, that we would no longer be slaves. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you can do, for we cannot change ourselves. We desperately need you, and we cry out for your grace in these moments. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So this is God's word, Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word. So we have a big idea, something that I think is going to guide our time today. It's that seeking God drives out anxiety. Seeking God drives out anxiety. We must fight to trust in his sovereign goodness in our lives. All right, how do we drive out anxiety? By seeking the Lord. And our fight is to believe that God is sovereign and he is good and to trust that for our lives personally. Because we can acknowledge those things but not practically trust in those things and it does us no good. So our outline, and I took this from somebody else, um, which uh, they did a really good job. So I was like, all right, that outline clarifies the text and makes sense. But um, the three, principle, the three uh, things we're going to talk about, three Ps. So we had three Ds yesterday or last week, and we're doing three Ps this week. So uh, there's a principle, there are practices, and there's promises, right? And so uh, there's a principle that, 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 that overarchs the whole text. There are practices, six practices specifically that this text teaches, and then there are, there's a promise uh, that God gives. 
So first, the, the, the principle, right? The principle that we see in Matthew 6 uh, is that he talks about that we are to wholeheartedly seek the Lord, right? We've talked about already in our big idea that how is it that we are to drive out anxiety? The way that we drive out anxiety is by wholeheartedly seeking Christ, right? That whatever we pursue, when we pursue the Lord, it is what pushes out anxiety. Um, there's an old classic, and it, the, one of the titles of it, it talks about the expulsive power of a new affection. And I love that title because it talks about that there, when there's a passion, when there's desire, and you can see it, right? When you see, uh, you know, someone that first falls in love, right? I mean, like, it's like they're blind to everything else that's going on around them, you know? I mean, like, they, they're love drunk. And so, you know, you, you just see their, their gaze is focused, and they don't have time for anything else, right? Because they're consumed. And so when we are consumed with the Lord, it drives out anxiety. And you see, right, previously in, in, in this chapter, it talks about what are the two common things that drive anxiety? Well, a desire to please people and a desire for the treasures of this world. Right? These are one, some of the two most common things that drives our anxiety. And why? I mean, think about it. If you are always trying to please people, isn't that going to drive anxiety in your life? Because, I mean, shoot, what do they think of you? I mean, half the time you're going to be anxious, not because they think something wrong of you, but because you project they think something wrong of you, right? You ever had that? You're like, man, I, they think that of me, and they're like, I, didn't, I don't think anything about you, right? And you're projecting onto them what you think they think of you. I mean, it gets really confusing then. And so, you know, you, you're going to cloud yourself in this ball of anxiety because you're projecting not what people actually even think, but what you think they might be thinking. And then, Maybe people do think, because guess what? You're never going to please everybody. And so you're always going to have somebody that thinks something wrong of you or thinks something ill of you. And so if you're living to please that person, then you're constantly going to be living in disappointment. You're constantly going to be living in disappointment to someone or somewhere. Well, what about if we try to live for the treasures of this world? And isn't that going to drive anxiety? Anybody ever had something they, they got really nice like a... So our, our, uh, our fence fell down during the hurricane, and uh, we just put a, a fence up, and now I'm kind of like, all right, don't mess with the fence, right? I mean, like, we just fixed the thing. Like, don't mess with it. I feel like that's the case with the boat all the time. Like, I, like, fix something on the boat, and something else breaks on it, you know? Um, but, like, you fix something, you make it nice, and you're like, all right, like, now, like, I want to take care of it, you know? Like, I want to make sure everything's good. Now, the more you have and the nicer stuff you have, the more you're worried about taking care of that stuff, right? I mean, is there anybody giving an amen, right? I mean, like, I realize that. I mean, and so you, when you're seeking the treasures of this world, your contentment is that if I just had a little bit more, if I just had this, if I just had that, well, guess what? The more you have, the more time it's going to take you to care for what you have, and the more you're going to care about those things. And guess what? Something's going to happen. You can't stop hurricanes, right? I mean, something's going to happen that's going to mess up those things. And so what are you going to do? It's going to bring anxiety in your life. You're constantly going to be worrying, whether it's about the house or the car or whether it's about the work or whatever it is. When you're laying up treasures in this world, it is going to drive anxiety in your life. Now, hear me. This does not mean that we're not good stewards. It's not that we're like, well, listen, everything's going to break, so I might as well do nothing, right? I mean, like, I'm not going to fix anything. It's going to break again. Right? I mean, like, no, we're called to be good stewards, but our treasure isn't in this world. Our hope isn't in these, these things, these objects. Hear what Jesus says, right? He says, therefore, I tell you. Right? He, he says that, listen, when we are wholeheartedly seeking God, it has practical application. You know, a lot of times people say, you know, I don't know if you've heard this quote, they're, uh, they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, right? You ever heard that, right? They got their heads stuck in the clouds. They just don't do anything here. You know, I think that's the biggest lie I've ever heard because the Bible knows the exact opposite. Though the Bible warns against is it says you're so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good, right? You're so focused on the transient things of this world that you serve no purpose other than the temporal and that it's ultimately going to fade away and be empty. And I don't want to spend my life on things that aren't going to last. I, I, I don't want to spend my life on things that are momentary, that things that are just going to be here and then gone, that ultimately none of it matters, none of it has a purpose. And he says here that when we devote ourselves to God, it has very practical implications in our life. It's going to make a difference when we truly give ourselves over to the Lord. So why does Jesus choose to talk about anxiety here? 
All right, why doesn't he switch up the, 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 the routine? Why doesn't he talk about something else in this passage? Why doesn't he say, say, hey, listen, you know, like anxiety, you know, everybody, right? I mean, doesn't everybody struggles with anxiety. I mean, like everybody has forms of anxiety, some people more than others, but, but everybody has somewhat familiar with anxiety. You know, why not talk about something that, you know, is, is bigger? Why not talk about murder here or lust here? I think the reason that Jesus chooses to talk about anxiety here is because I think anxiety is one of the, one of the paths that leads us to, into other sin, right? So if you, if you have anxiety about finances, that might lead you to greed. It might lead you into covetousness. It might lead you into theft, right? I mean, if you have anxiety over relationships, that might affect how you handle conflict. It might affect how you serve others, how you even listen to them, how you engage with them. And so anxiety is kind of this pathway that, has, that can lead to many roads, right? That, that if you can deal with anxiety, if you can submit anxiety unto the Lord and you can bring that in, submit it, and find healing in that, that all these other pathways that you've been struggling with that have been these, these difficult areas, they might fall into place. And so I think it's one of the reasons that Jesus says, listen, submit this, because anxiety is primarily a trust thing. It's a trust issue. Now I want to make a, a, a confirm, uh, I want to make a claim that might seem uh, difficult to, to believe, but I think that, that what this text says and what Jesus says, what Christianity says, is that those that believe in Christ are the ones that truly are able to have real and lasting and ultimate peace. Now, this isn't saying that every Christian at the moment that they believe are going to ha- experience perfect peace and they're never going to struggle with anxiety, right? That's not at all what I think Jesus is teaching here. But what I think that he is teaching is that he's saying that in Christ, there is a peace that we can truly experience that will drive out anxiety. Now, if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, I think that there are things that we are to worry about. I think that the biggest thing that if you're not a Christian to worry about is to worry about the time that you face God, the time that you see him face to face. And I think that is something that should cause a, a non-Christian to worry. Because what is, ultimately, what is worry? Worry is bringing the future stress into the present. Right, think about that, right? Isn't that what worry is, anxiety is? It is thinking about something in the future and bringing that stress of what might happen, of what could happen, and it's bringing all of those things into the present. Now, I think that there's a time when anxiety really should hit, and it's when you think about what's ultimate. When you think about that there is a, to- a time and a moment where you will see God face to face, and we will give an account to our creator, the one that made us, the one that loved us, the one that gave his life for us, and that we'll stand before him, and we will give an account, and that, there's, there's no second chances after that. There's no turning back. That God gives us an opportunity to respond in this life and in this world, and he desperately desires that we would come to him and I believe that that, and, it, and the Bible talks about that, that that should weigh on us. That it should, it should make us think, because Jesus says, listen, there's a heavy yoke that falls upon us, and he says, I've come to take it off of you. But if we refuse Christ, that heavy yoke remains. That burden, that deep anxiety will continue. And Christ offers us peace. Hear this in, in Isaiah 9, 6. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus comes and can bring peace because he is the Prince of Peace. He is peace incarnate. Isaiah 53 talks about how he has purchased this peace for us. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see, the reason we should have anxiety if we're outside of Christ is because we're enemies of him. How many times, I think in my own life, how many times and ways have I told God that you're unworthy of my love, you're unworthy of my worship, you're unworthy of my attention, of my finances, of my relationship, of my sexuality, and we push God out and we tell him, God, I know better than you. God, I'm a better God than you are. I should rule and reign in my own life. And if the world were the way I see it, things would be much better. And so we, we are enemies of God. We fight against God. And there, 
God right now is in a place where he says, listen, I am offering amnesty. I'm offering forgiveness. There's a white flag come and experience grace, but there will be a time when I come back and that offer will no longer be. And there will be war and there I will put an end to evil and it will no longer exist in this world. And Jesus, man, Jesus shows us that the Prince of Peace came to those that were his enemies, those that waged war against him, those that said, we don't want you, we know better. And he said, no, you don't. And in spite of your rejection, I still love you and I will die for you. And it says that he took, he took the wrath that was due us. He took the burden that we deserve to bear. And in turn, he gives us peace. Ephesians 2.14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. God no longer, when you trust in Christ, God no longer sees you as an enemy, but he sees you as a son, as a daughter. He sees you as one dearly loved. He cares for you. He loves you deeply. And this is the thing is that the first aspect in our life as a Christian is that we experience peace with God. If you don't experience peace with God, if you have not trusted in Christ as your sacrifice, then there's no peace with God. You're still choosing to wage war against God and his kingdom and saying that you are a better king than he is. And there can only be one king. But if you trust in Christ, there is a peace with God. And that peace with God, it will bring a peace from God. And we cannot experience the peace from God, that emotional, that there's, an, there's an experience to it. Right? The Holy Spirit comes in and he verifies that we are God's children. He speaks to us. He clarifies and encourages us. But there can be no peace from God unless there is first peace with God. And so we see this principle that, that drives out anxiety in our life is it is this wholehearted devotion to the Lord. And this is what the passage says. Therefore, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek him first. Put him first and it will drive out anxiety in your life. It will give you a single focus. Now, the, the majority of our passage I want to spend talking about practices. And I want, I want us to imagine these practices as a tool belt, right? So different tools work in different circumstances, okay? Sometimes you need a hammer, sometimes you need a drill, sometimes you need a screwdriver, sometimes you need a clamp, right? I mean, so I want you to imagine these as six different tools. And some of you are going to be like, listen, I really need that tool right now, or I really need that tool now. Some of you might, I don't understand that, or that's not, listen, don't just hold on, put all the tools in, you might need it someday, all right? Like, don't just start throwing out tools because you don't think that they're useful right now. All right? So I want to talk about six, six practices or six tools, you know, to help us fight anxiety um, or truths that Jesus talks about here. So the first one we see in verse 25, and it's that we are to commit our whole life and body to Christ and not to necessities. That we are to commit our whole life and body to Christ and not to necessities. In verse 25, it says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So these are necessities, right? I mean, can everybody agree, like, glad that we wore clothing today, right? Clothing is important. <laughs> it's not good to go without clothing. I mean, anybody get an amen that like, you're glad that we have food? Like, I know I am. Like, I'm thankful for food, you know? But, but so these are necessities. Like, we can't go without food, without clothing. But why? Why are these necessities? It's because they are the things that sustain life, right? I mean, we need food to continue on. We need clothing so that we, are, you know, we can get sunburned and die. I mean, like there's, there's different reasons. So we protect, you know, it's not too cold down here, but primarily, you know. Uh, so we, we need these things. They help sustain life. But listen, they are not the purpose of life. If you live for food or if you live for clothing, you are not living the purpose for which you were created. And so what Jesus is here saying, he's saying, listen, don't commit your life to the things that life isn't about. Don't give, don't give your life and don't, don't let the, the things that simply sustain life to be the things that give purpose to your life and rule your life. I mean, we see this all throughout the scriptures, right? I mean, so think about Daniel. I mean, Daniel is given a decree in the Old Testament and, and the, 
the different uh, rulers that were with him tricked the king into saying, listen, no one should pray. No one should, you know, worship anybody else besides you. And Daniel says, you know, what's more important than my safety. You know, it's more important than me, my life. It's seeking the Lord. And so he goes and he continues to pray. And God, God delivered him from that. Why? Because he chose. He said, listen, these things that give, you know, sustenance to my life, they're not the purpose for my life. There's something that's more important than just breathing, than just eating, than just surviving. Think about Esther, right? Esther is going before the king to beg the king for his uh, forgiveness that, that he would not, that he would spare the Jewish people because uh, Haman has tricked the king into wanting to kill all the Jewish people. And so Esther says, and she calls her people to fast. And they, they are willing to give up food for a season. And she is willing to risk her life. Why? Because there's something more important than simply her life, than food. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, same thing. Right? I mean, when they're offered, when they're told to bow down, they refuse to bow down. They go into a burning furnace, right? Because they said that my purpose in life isn't just to have a, a comfortable life. It's not just for my body to stay secure. But they show that the purpose of life is, is greater and they were willing to sacrifice that. And we see it with Jesus, ultimately. Did he not show that this life is more important than clothing and food? And it, isn't that the promise that we so long for? It, I mean, for me, that's what I want. I want a life that's unshakable. A life that it doesn't matter if I have much or if I have little. A life that it doesn't matter if I have a home or, or the tragedies that befall me, but I'm still able to find peace and joy because that's, so, that's what we're longing for, right? I mean, that's what people are trying to use their possessions. They're trying to use their job. They're trying to use their relationships to gain. They're trying to use these things to gain joy, to gain peace, to find purpose. And Jesus says, listen, in me, you have all of these things. You have all of these things. And so it's a life that is built on a rock that's unshakable. And it's able to prevent because if, if you're trying to find your joy and your peace and your purpose in these things, you're going to always have anxiety. Always. Because all of these things are going to constantly be attacking. They're going to be under attack. This world is not going to allow those things to be stable, at least not for any length of time. So one of the ways that we fight anxiety is that we, we say, listen, and we commit to saying my life is bigger than just what sustains my body. My life is bigger than just what will clothe me. I will commit my life to what truly matters, not just simply the things that necessitate survival. The second thing that we see is that um, we don't depend on work or ourselves to provide, but we, we rely on God who values us. And we see this in verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? What do you ultimately depend on to provide for you? Do you think that it's primarily and ultimately your work, or it's ultimately your ability? Now, don't get me wrong. We're to work. I mean, when you look at birds, I mean, right, they're pretty active. I mean, I guess every once in a while you have some fat birds that just like sit on the perch and maybe go down to the feeder, but that's because of us. You know, most birds are pretty active. They're going about, they're building, they're doing things, but right, they're ultimately not the ones that provided for them. I mean, they didn't make the tree. They didn't make the worms. I mean, they didn't, they're, they're benefactors of the gifts of God. And so too, why is it that you have the job you have? Why is it that you have the abilities you have? Why do you have the energy or the drive that you have? Do you think that all of these were just by your willpower? You popped out the womb and you said, I'm going to be this kind of person. You determined your personality. You determined all of these things, right? I mean, how absurd is it that we think that we're ultimately the ones that have provided for ourselves and all of these things? And we, do you think it's just random chance? Or do you not think that maybe it's the gift of a good and gracious God who loves us and who has provided for us all of these things, the work and even the desire so ultimately, what we, what we rely upon is not our ability to work. It's not even our ability to provide in ourselves, but ultimately, it's upon our Heavenly Father. And this means that we are the best of workers because we know whom we work for, right? That we are not working to please our employer. We're not working to please man. And we're not 
we're not strapped into a job because there's no other way. We know and we trust that God is able to provide. And so therefore, that means that Christians aren't, aren't mitigated into illegal or unethical work. We can say no because we know that, listen, God's going to provide. I don't know how or what that looks like, but I trust that God's going to give me the, ne- the things necessary, right, to glorify him. And so that, that, frees, that frees us. Why? Because God values you. I mean, think about this. He gives the illustration in, in nature, right? That God values the birds of the air. He values these things. Man, how much does God value you? And some of us need to hear that. Some of us don't, well, we don't see what God sees in us. We don't see how he could value us. And so you need to hear that God knows you and God values you. He cares for you. He made you in his image. And some of us, our whole lives, we've been told whether it's by our parents or whether it's by our friends or even maybe it's by ourselves that we're not enough we're not good enough, that we're failures, that we're trash, that we don't belong. You need to hear God speak over you that he loves you, that you are valued, that he loved you enough to where he would die for you to redeem you. Man, and we need to hear that. We need to believe that. We need to see ourselves as God sees us. Man, isn't that healing? I know in marriage, that's been one of the best things, you know, my wife, how my wife chooses to see me and how I fight to see my wife is it can heal each other. And man, and that's just a microcosm of how God sees us and how when we believe how God sees us, it changes us. And we begin to live in light of that. Now, I use this illustration all the time, but it's like we're orphans and God is a king and he takes us into his kingdom, but yet we still think that we're orphans and we still steal, we still hide, we still grab blankets to, to warm ourselves because we don't really believe that we are sons and daughters of a king. But man, when we believe that, when it clicks, whatever moment it is, that it begins to click, like, hey, I'm not an orphan any longer. Like, I don't have to do those things. Like, I've got a God, I've got a, I've got a father that knows me and loves me, and I'm his son, I'm his daughter. That changes us. Our identity changes in that moment. And don't you think that that affects your anxiety when you believe that you have a father that is rich and able to provide for you? Right? I mean, like, what do you lack? That changes the way that we relate to others. How, I mean, this is extremely practical, so the third thing that we see is that we are to we're stick with what works, right? You want to talk about just being practical? Like he's extremely practical here. Stick with what works, right? Verse 27, he says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So how many people, like, operate, they think that anxiety is, like, a great way of living life? Right? You're like, listen, like, I want to live the anxious life. Like, that's, like, I, my goal, right? Or how many people, like, promote it? They're like, hey, listen, like, I think that if you just worried more, life would be better, right? I mean, I think that would really help you. Like, you don't worry enough, and so let me help you to worry more, and then life would be better for you. Now, like, we laugh at that, but let me, let me ask, there, I guarantee you there's a lot of us that we think and we make worrying a way of life almost, because listen to this, when somebody starts worrying, tell them and just say, hey, don't worry about it. And just listen to what they say. How can I not worry about it? What are you talking about? Don't worry about it. Like I got this coming up this month, right? And they're going to begin to argue. They're going to argue with you why worrying is a better path in life than why not worrying is. And so they're fighting in that moment. They're fighting for why they think that worrying is going to solve their problems. Why they think worrying is a better path to walk on than choosing not to worry. Now, now, I'm not saying that you just say, don't worry, and it's that easy, right? That's, I mean, it's not. But I think that it's easy to see that we often fight to worry because worry gives us some sense of control. It gives us this illusion that we can manage our life and manage the things around us. And he says, it doesn't work. I mean, think about it. D- does worrying ever really solve the problems that you're in? Or does it just make them more complex and make them more difficult and make you more frustrated and break relationships more? And so he says, listen, if, if worrying does that, then don't you want to really commit and fight to not? I mean, don't you want to say, listen, like, I realize that this path is, like, foolish, and so I'm going to, when I see it in myself, that I, because we do, we all have that disposition at times to fight for why we ought to worry, and we're going to, I'm, I'm going to fight to say, no, I'm not going to defend worrying. I'm going to realize that I'm worrying, acknowledge and confess it, 
and I'm going to fight to trust. I'm going to fight to trust rather than defending my anxiety, defending my worry, and then perpetuating it. I'm going to acknowledge my worry, acknowledge my anxiety, and then say, no, I realize I'm doing it, but I'm not going to defend why I ought to do that. That's what I'm doing, and I'm going to fight to not do that. I'm going to fight to trust. I'm going to fight to trust. And so it's just, it's practical, honestly, when we see Jesus here. Why do you, why do you worry? You can't add a single hour to your life. So the next way I think Jesus says, and I think this is one of freedom, is how, how do we beat worry? He says, if we want to beat worry, we must confess. We must confess. Verse 28 and 29, or 28 through 30. says, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do you see how careful God is with things that are temporary? He talks about the, the lilies of the field. That it's, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow, and yet it's more beautiful, and God cares for it and provides for it and allows it to grow even more than Solomon in all of his glory. And it's just talking about that God cares for the things that are here for just an instant and then are gone. Right? He says that it's, it's here today and it's plucked up and it's thrown into the oven. And what's really interesting, I, I learned something new when I was studying this, is that, you know, Jesus says that we were to pray for our daily bread. Well, one of the reasons is that they made bread daily, right? That was one of the customs that they did. And how did they cook that bread? Well, they didn't use wood often. Most of the time that they would grab the grass of the field and they would use that as the mechanism to burn and to cook their bread. And so they would take up each day these, this grass and these lilies of the field and they would use it and they would put it in the oven to burn in order that it would be a provision for them. And he says, such temporary things God cares for. How much more will he care for you? Oh, you of little faith. And here's, right, here's the reality. The, the, the hard truth is that you and I are going to die. There's going to come a point, and listen, for some of us it might be sooner than later. We don't know. You don't know your day or your hour. Some of us it might die this year. This year might be our last year that we're here. Some of us, it might be 30 years from now or 40. We don't know the day or the hour. And so he says, why are you going to add on to your life by worrying about that? Can you control that? Are you in control of your life? You know, my senior year, and, and everybody has different times where this is evident, but seeing my, one of my best friends die, my mom go through cancer the second time, it was one of the moments that I, I realized I don't have, and the Lord, man, God's good. If he don't learn the lesson the first time, he'll teach it to you a couple more times just to make sure you get it, you know? But like, I feel like the Lord's constantly teaching, you don't have control. You don't have control. You have control. You think that you have control over your health. You think you have control over when you're going to die. You think you have control over the relationships or the people around you. And it's an illusion. We don't have control. But there's freedom when we confess and we say, God, I don't have control, but I believe that you do. And there are ways, and we all struggle with anxiety differently. Some of us, we have, we struggle, and anxiety is deeply rooted. And it's, it's more like uh, something that's cemented in our life, right? Other, others of it, it's more like a vase where we can kind of pick up and we can move it, you know? But our anxiety usually revolves around our idols. What is it that you worship? What is it you find that you put before God? And usually that's where our anxiety drives because we're afraid of losing it. We're afraid of not controlling it. But the first place in healing is confessing it. If you come in and you say, listen, I'm good. I don't have anxiety. Listen, you're deceiving yourself. You really do have anxiety. You're just blind to it. And, and you're not going to be freed from it either. You're going to continue to walk in that anxiety, and it's going to continue to affect your relationships and your life. And so the first place of healing is coming and acknowledging and saying, God, sometimes I struggle to believe that you're going to provide for me enough. Sometimes I, I doubt your goodness and thinking that you've got me, and I, I sometimes lapse into thinking that I have to provide for myself, and I have to work this out, and I have to do this in order that these things would be secured. 
And so, God, I acknowledge that, and I invite you, please, that you would come and that you would, you would remind me and you would reinforce that, that you have given me your son, and what good thing will you not give me? And so, God, I, I realize and I confess that sometimes I struggle to live for this life and not for the life to come. That sometimes I look at all the things that are here, and I think that these are more important and more satisfying than what eternity will be. I acknowledge that, and God, I ask that you would come in, that you would help me to see the things that are unseen as more permanent, as more enduring, as more beautiful and valuable than things that are here. And so you and I, we find freedom from our anxiety not by suppressing it, not by acting like we don't have it, but we, we, we find freedom by confessing it, acknowledging that we struggle with it, and asking that God would come in and that he would, he would increase our faith, that he would give us strength to believe even greater I was reading a, uh, another manuscript over this text uh, by Matt Chandler, and it was just really convicting for me because uh, he, uh, he talked about that struggling, you know, that the Lord, he had brain cancer, and, uh, and how, you know, struggling with that. And I know that many of you, you've struggled with cancer, you've struggled, and you've seen those that have died or those that are even dying, and, man, that anxiety is so real. It's, I mean, you're maybe even in the midst of it. And you need to know that God is with you and that he is good and that he is sovereign. And sometimes it's hard for us to see those things, right? Maybe we think, oh God, you're in control, but maybe you're not good because if you're good, things would look differently, right? Or maybe you're good, but I don't really think that you're in control, so I need to take control for myself. And that's where we have to go. We have to run back to the cross, we have to go because the cross is the final and the full demonstration of both God's sovereignty and of his goodness. That God is sovereign and he was sovereign and that he orchestrated all of these things into the moments of greatest darkness turned out to be the moments of greatest light. And he is good because he was willing to crush his son and so therefore he, we know it's not that God doesn't love us. It's not that God doesn't care for us but that God has a bigger purpose in this. And I promise you, I don't know if you've had this experience, I have, but you know, times when you look back on your younger years and you think, you know, like, hey, that was really dumb. Why was I worried about that, right? You know, I mean, whether it's about work or whether it's about college or whether it's about something, but you, you get, time gives you a little perspective, right? You look back and you're like, man, why was I worried about that girl? Like, dude, we, like, we dated for like, uh, you know, six months and I like was all in a fret about it, you know, or why was I worried about that job or why was I worried about that, you know, like, and we think and time gives us perspective on those things and we think about them like, man, all right, hopefully I've learned from that and I'm not going to run through the same gauntlet again. I'm not going to be anxious and all fraught because I've gained some perspective on that. How much perspective do you think eternity gives you? Do you think maybe a little bit more than what you can see, you and I can see right now? And so, God's perspective is very different and is much better than ours in the events that don't make sense to us. And it takes humility to acknowledge that. It takes humility to realize that, God, you have more knowledge than I have, and you're a better judge than I am right now. And so I'm going to suspend and give you my judgment and, and ask that you would help me to see things from your lens, from your perspective. And so I hope that you find freedom and that this is why we think community groups are so important, that we, we think discipleship is so important, is because if we don't have other people where we can genuinely confess and do these things, then our lives are going to continue to be marked by them. God's given us a people to do this together with. Psalm 53, 6, it says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, Lord. And so we need to put our trust in the Lord when, we, when we're afraid. So the fifth thing that we see is, is it says, uh, we are t do not be worldly. Trust the Father who knows your need. Do not be worldly. Trust the Father who knows your need. Verse 31, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So there are a couple ways to be worldly, Right? Usually when we think of worldly, we think of somebody that's like, you know, really set on making their bank account really big or having the finer things in life or, you know, greedy or luxurious. You know, oftentimes we think of that as being worldly. But here Jesus says, listen, those that are worldly are those that chase their necessities without realizing they have a heavenly father that knows and loves them. So 
it would be like Theo, you know, who's, you know, four weeks old. It would be like him when he turns, like, four, being like, all right, I got to go get a job because I got to feed myself. You know, like, I got to, like, somebody's got to, I got to feed myself. I got clothes I got to start working for, you know, and you're kind of like, well, wait a second, little dude. Like, one, where are you going to get a job? Like, I'm going to be impressed. But, uh, but two, um, I got you. Like, I, I got you. Like, you don't need to worry. You don't need to fret. Like, I, I, I've, I've got you on those things. Just, just remain in us. Just be with us. Whether, you, you know, like, we love you and we've got you. And so we can pursue things that are necessary for our lives. But if we pursue those things without a trust in the Father, and we, we act like God doesn't exist, like God's not going to provide for us, and we got to provide for ourselves, how are we any different than people that don't believe in God? Right? I mean, like, right? Aren't we not practical atheists in that moment? We're living our life as if God doesn't exist, as if God's not loving us, if he's not really a part of our life, or we're just deists. God's out there somewhere, maybe, but he really doesn't know me or love me or interact with me at all. And so we, we, we work, we, we do the things God called us to do because we know we have a Heavenly Father that loves us and will provide for us. And the last thing, uh, and I, I love this, it says, we do not borrow tomorrow's troubles, but we live in today's grace. We do not borrow tomorrow's troubles, but we live in today's grace. Verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Isn't that what anxiety is? Is that your fret about what can happen tomorrow? And hear this, God hasn't given you grace today for tomorrow. God has given you grace today for today. And God will give you grace tomorrow for tomorrow. You simply need to fight to believe that God will give you grace tomorrow when you need it. And so we, and, and it's, it's a struggle, right? I mean, that's why in 1 Peter 5, 7, it says, cast all of your cares upon me for I care for you. And so it's, it's not easy, right? I mean, but it's a fight, and so if we come into this without thinking that it's going to be a fight, without thinking that it's going to require effort, we're deluding ourselves. And so what happens when anxiety hits or what happens when we start thinking about this or we're kept up at night where we go through a whole life? I don't know if anybody else, but you go through whole life situations. You're like, and you go off in like hours thinking about, oh, they're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this. You build whole life scenarios, you know? And, and so how do you fight against those things when anxiety just wants to riddle you and wants to take you hold and captive? You fight by, by resting, saying, God, you've given me grace to handle today, and so I'm not going to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm not going to worry about what's going to happen a week from now. And listen, worrying is not the same as I don't plan, okay? Like, don't go from here and be like, well, pastor said I can be just irresponsible. I don't need to plan about anything, right? No, God did not tell you that. Like, and I did not tell you that, okay? Listen, the farmer, he's a dumb farmer. If he just says, listen, the crop's going to sow, you know, I'm going to sow it sometime and eventually it'll pop up. Like, no, you got to realize, all right, there's a time when I sow, there's a time when I reap. You know, I need to go and I need to be diligent, okay? God has called us to make plans. God has not called us to emotionally attach ourselves to those plans. He's not said, listen, I want your whole heart and life to be wrapped up in those plans. I want your heart and life to be wrapped up in me and trust me for the plans. There are times where God might say no to something that you thought God was planning. And so you need to each day say, God, give me enough grace for today and, and fight when the temptation is, when you start getting those things about what am I going to do for tomorrow? What am I going to do about this? Fight to give that over to the Lord. I mean, that's where prayer comes in. And personally for me, that's where we've talked about fasting two or three weeks ago, but that's where, you know, like I've neglected fasting and I feel like the Lord wants to, wants to bring freedom in different areas in our congregation, in my own life through fasting. But, but the Lord will help us to fight and to be freed from the things of this world as we seek him through fasting and prayer. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23, it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And there's an old hymn. It says, He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. And so some days God might give us more heartache than others, but we trust that he will give us grace as we lean into him to make it through that day. And so there's, there's a promise 
All right, the promise is, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All right, and this is the guarantee, this is the promise. What does it mean? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. What does the all things will be added unto you mean? Right, I mean, because some of us, and, and it's not helpful when we use Christian cliches and we don't think about what the verse means. Okay, because sometimes you'll hear this, and listen, if you have read church history at all, or if you just pay attention anywhere around the world, you'll know that we have brothers and sisters in the Lord that die all the time because of persecution, because of starvation, because of, you know, hunger. And so are we saying, well, listen, God just doesn't provide. Apparently this verse isn't true, right? Because he didn't add everything unto them. And so the question is, what is the every, that God will add everything, you know, that unto them? And so it's, I think what it means is that it means that God will give us what is necessary for us to glorify him in that moment. That God, God's appointed a day where you and I will die, just as we had a, a day was appointed when we were born. And so because we seek first the kingdom doesn't mean that we aren't going to experience suffering, right? It's not like we don't believe the prosperity gospel, okay? That means that when you come to Jesus, you're going to have your best life now. You're going to get wealthy, healthy, famous, maybe a new car, right? I mean, like, that's not at all what the Bible teaches. And so when you come to Christ, you can experience and expect to experience suffering and hardship. But God, when you seek first his kingdom, he is going to give you the things necessary to make it through. And this is what Paul says when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? What does he mean? He means that I can be content and have peace and glorify God when I have much or when I have little. When I have barely anything to eat and I'm scraping by in a prison, or when I'm sitting in a mansion having filet mignon, chilling with people that are super wealthy. He says, God has equipped me and given me everything that I need to glorify him in both of those situations. And so this is, this is the promise. And I hope that, that, that you live for two days, right? You live today and you live for the day when you see Christ. These are the only two days that we need to live in light of is we live in light of the present day and we live in light of the day when we will see the Lord. Because 20,000 years from now, you and I will look back and no matter how hard or no matter how anxious we have felt, they will seem trivial. It will seem trivial in 20,000 years. And listen, that doesn't mean that right now it's not hard. It doesn't excuse or, or make light of the difficulties right now, but hopefully it will put in perspective those things and it will give you hope to face those things. Because you'll say, listen, I know that right now I feel like this is life or death. This is the biggest deal in the world. But as I trust in Christ, I'll look back on this and I'll realize that this was not as important as I thought it was. So listen to Philippians 6, and, or Philippians 4, verse 6 through 7, and, and we're going to pray. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, Lord, I confess that there are moments and times where I struggle with anxiety, where I want control of my life, where I want to provide for, for my life, Lord, where I, uh, I don't believe. And so I ask God, Holy Spirit, in my own life, Lord, and in our lives, that you would, you would peel back and you would help us to be healed. God, that we would acknowledge our own weakness, our own frailty, but that we would rely upon you and your strength and your grace and your love. That we would believe that you are both sovereign and good. And so help us, Holy Spirit. We invite you into these moments that you would, uh, you would clarify and that you would confirm uh, your work in us through your spirit. Same we pray. Amen.